Today's reading is from Matthew. Is this on? It's on. Okay. I couldn't hear. It's from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his brother Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Following any huge event is an aftermath. It's, it's like the wake that follows behind a boat as it goes through the water. The aftermath or the consequences, the effects that, that kind of ripple out from the event itself. And Matthew chapter 2 is the aftermath of Jesus' birth. 
And the aftermath makes clear to us that just because Jesus the Messiah is here, all your problems are not gone. In fact, in the aftermath of Jesus' arrival, it seems to create and to make obvious some other problems. So if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. As we look at this chapter, we're going to see five things. We're going to see five prophecies, four dreams, three gifts, two kings, and one tragedy. Again, we're going to see five fulfilled prophecies, four guiding dreams, three meaningful gifts, two conflicted kings, and one horrible tragedy. Sounds like the 12 days of Christmas, doesn't it? And while I'm tempted to go down the list and address the five prophecies, the four dreams, etc., etc., instead I think we're just going to follow the narrative flow itself, and I'll point these out as we go. Does that sound okay to you? I hope so, because that's how it's in my notes. So. so let's get started. So church family, first you already know my issues with the Christmas carol, We Three Kings. And you remember that young Jacob led you on rebellion while I was gone to sing it. So, but we've obviously edited it for today. Thank you, Abigail. It was a good idea. Where'd you go, Abigail? She's, she was the one who uh, rethought that. But the carol itself is great, except for those three words, we three kings. Um, because as we've discussed in Christmas's past, the Magi are some of the most misunderstood characters in the whole Christmas story. As we've noted before, the Bible never tells us the number of travelers. The Bible tells us the number of the types of gifts that were given, but never the number of travelers. And since Magi is plural, we know there, there were at least two, but we don't know exactly how many. And as we've discussed before, the Bible also never calls these people kings. It calls them Magi, which is the plural of the Greek word magos, where we get our word magic. So these were magicians. Wise men, Chaldeans from the east, from the land of Babylon. Historians tell us these magi were not themselves kings, but they were part of a powerful and influential group who were responsible for the making of many kings. So whoever these travelers were, and however there were, however many of them there were, they were not kings, but they might have been known in the ancient world as king makers, helping install kings into power. And so with their arrival to Jerusalem, we find the first of the five fulfilled prophecies that are in chapter 2. The Magi come asking in chapter 2, in verse 2, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. His star. Uh, how do the Magi know about a new king in Israel and a star, where does this knowledge, this understanding come from? Friends, it's the first of the fulfilled prophecies. Those of you who've been with us for a while remember that last year we studied the biblical book of Daniel. 500 years before the book, birth of Jesus, while the people of Israel and Judah were exiled into the land of Babylon, there was a young Jewish man named Daniel who rose to prominence in Babylon and in fact became the king or the, I'm sorry, not the king, but the head of all the Magos, the wise men, the Chaldeans in Babylon. And as the head of the wise men, Daniel would have instructed all these Magi in all wisdom, including the prophecy and wisdom of his homeland, Israel. 
And when he instructed them, he likely would have told them the prophecy of a prophet named Balaam. And we have the prophecy of Balaam recorded for us in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. Balaam said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. A star shall come out of Jacob, out of Israel. A scepter, a king, shall rise. Now, the Magi were known as astrologers. They they regularly were watching the stars. And so the words of this prophecy were probably handed down from generation to generation of Magi, from Daniel to the next generation, the next, the next. And this generation of Magi, knowing this prophecy, watching the stars, saw a new star arise. And they knew what that star meant. A star has risen in Jacob. A scepter has risen. A new king. And they came to worship. And friends, the amazing thing, the incredible thing about this is not just that this ancient prophecy was fulfilled. What's incredible is that the first persons that Matthew records as recognizing that Jesus is a king are pagan wise men. Foreigners from far away from Israel. The baby who's been born, friend, is, friends, is a Messiah who has come not just for Israel, but for all the nations. And in fact, one day, one day people from every single tribe and tongue and nation will bow before the one who was born in Bethlehem. But these pagan wise men come and are some of the very first to bow before him. Now, these wise men come looking for a new king who's been born. And so what do they do? They go to look for the king where you would expect to find a king. In the capital city. In the palace. So they go to Jerusalem and they go to the palace of Herod the Great. So Herod the First, or Herod the Great as he was known, was an Idumean or an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau and not Jacob. So Herod didn't have a true claim to the throne of Israel. He'd been installed by Rome as a puppet king over Israel because Rome controlled the world at that time. So, as you can imagine, Herod sat on the throne, but he knew that his kingship was illegitimate and it was tenuous. So when a bunch of magi, oriental kingmakers, show up in town and start asking about a new king, Herod panicked. Verse 3 says that Herod was troubled. The Greek word literally means he was shaking. Herod does not want another king to come and take his throne. And here is where we get the two conflicted kings. The two conflicted kings that I mentioned in our numerical list. The true king has come to town, and so the false king now trembles in fear. Because unlike Herod, the new king is legitimate. You might remember from yesterday that by the end of chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew has emphasized four times that Jesus is a descendant of King David. And if he's a descendant of King David, he has a legitimate claim to the throne of David. A legitimate claim to reign over David's kingdom. But this usurper Herod, an illegitimate king of the world, 
You better believe he is not about to go quietly. And church, this reminds us of something. It reminds us that to follow Jesus means to face opposition. Because the gods of this world will always resist the coming of the true king and his people. Jesus has never promised that in the aftermath of his coming, that all of our problems would be gone. In fact, Jesus promised us that if we follow him in this life, in some ways your problems are just beginning. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples in John 16.33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, the kings and the powers of this world will always oppose the advance of the true king and his people. It is as we sang this morning. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter. Harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle. Strong enough to last the war. And he has said that he will deliver safely to the golden shore. Church, the story of Herod here reminds us that as we follow Christ, we will face resistance and hatred from the kings and powers of this world. But church, take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Now, asking where this new king might be found, we come to the second of the five prophecies that I mentioned. And that's in verses 5 and 6. It says that the chief priests and scribes told Herod in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means, among the, uh, no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So these are the words of the prophet Micah, from chap- Micah chapter 5. Friends, Bethlehem is the city of King David. Bethlehem is a small city, but it is a city from which King David was born and came. And so born in David's city comes David's heir, the true king, the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of this prophecy from Micah chapter 5. The second prophecy fulfilled. And verse 7 tells us, Herod, hearing all of this, he talks to the wise men. He, he ascertains, when did they see the star first? Because as we've noted before, when we've studied the wise men, the Magi should not appear in our traditional stable scenes at Christmas. Based upon the action of Herod later on in this chapter, based upon the fact that we're going to see in verse 11, the Magi found not a baby but a child, and that they came to a house, not a stable, It seems likely, we know the Magi did not arrive the night of Jesus' birth, and it seems more likely that they arrived maybe up to two years after the night of Jesus' birth. So, when the Magi arrived, verse 11 tells us they presented three gifts to the child and his family. Again, not three kings, not necessarily three travelers, three gifts. So these are the three gifts as mentioned in our numerical list. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, really for a baby? I mean, how about like diapers or 
blankets or toys. Maybe something from Pottery Barn. I don't know. I mean, at least the Magi's gifts were better than the gift that that little drummer boy brought with all of his racket. Man, that felt flat. Woo! I won't try any more jokes today. Sorry. In all seriousness, what's the meaning behind the three gifts that the Magi brought to the baby Jesus? Well, we sang about them in our newly revised song, We Wise Men. The second verse of the song says, Born a king in Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Friends, gold is a gift for royalty. It's a gift that you give for royalty. This gift indicates that they recognized Jesus was royalty. They recognized he was a king. And they also recognized it because verse 11 says that they fell down and worshipped him. Do we do the same today? Do you do the same? The third verse of We Three Kings speaks about frankincense. It says, Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising, all men raising, worship him God most high. Now, frankincense is a gum resin from the Boswellia trees native to Asia and Africa. And according to the book of Exodus, this incense, frankincense, is the only incense that was permitted on the altar of incense in the temple sanctuary. Incense and the burning of incense was associated with the prayers of God's people. Friends, the coming of this child is an indication that the prayers of God's people have been heard. And more than that, that this child who's coming is going to make a new and a perfect way for us to come before God. Friends, we can come to God now with confidence through Jesus Christ because He is a mediator. He is our intercessor. He prays for us on our behalf. And God will hear him. And finally, verse 4 of the hymn says, Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breathes of life a gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Now, myrrh is a bitter-tasting resin gum, and it's made from the small thorny trees of the genus Comophora. Exodus 30 says that myrrh is one of the key ingredients in the holy anointing oil that they use to consecrate Aaron and his sons as priests. But even more than that, John 19 tells us that myrrh was one of the perfumes that was used to anoint Jesus' body when it was laid in the tomb. Friends, myrrh points to his death. And for in his death, he is a perfect sacrifice. In his death, he is anointed as the perfect and all-sufficient high priest who will make a way that through him and through his sacrificial death, we can now come to God. Friends, these three gifts tell us that in Jesus, we have a king, we have a mediator, we have a high priest. The three kings, that the, the three gifts that the Magi brought are meaningful because they explain to us the meaning Behind Jesus coming. And then in verse 12, we come to the first of the four dreams in this passage. The Lord appears to the Magi in a dream and he warns them, go home by another way. Herod's a liar. Now, friends, note that the true God here, what does he do? 
the true God reveals himself to a bunch of pagan magi. Friends, God is a God of all the nations. He is a God who is reaching to all the nations and the magi give us give us indication of what the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is going to unfold. All the nations will be blessed through this child. And next, in verses 13 through 15, we get the second of the four dreams in this chapter. And we're going to see the third of the five fulfilled prophecies. Now, as I was studying for this sermon, I discovered something I had never known before that absolutely I found fascinating. I mean, if I was to ask you, especially you who've who've been around for a while and who've read through the Bible a number of times, I might say, who in the Bible is recorded as having received the most dreams? And some of you that have been around for a while might go, well, what about Daniel? Daniel had a reputation as a great interpreter of dreams. Uh, others of you might say from the Old Testament that the, fig- the Old Testament figure of Joseph, who in fact was labeled by his brothers as a dreamer. But friends, you'd be wrong. Because the person in the Bible who is recorded as having received the most dream communications from the Lord is Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. Here in verse 13, the Lord appears to Matthew in a dream and warns him to take Mary and the child to flee from Egypt to avoid Herod's wrath. You might remember that in the previous chapter, God appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Mary, 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 don't not marry her. Don't abandon her. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So marry her. So we find once in chapter 1 and then three times right here in chapter 3. Here in verse 13, in verse 19, and again in verse 22. God appears to Joseph three times in this chapter, once in the previous chapter, four times total. There is no one else in the entire Bible to whom God appears more frequently in dreams than Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. Now, friends, I just want to make a note here. Remember that Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father. So why didn't God, like, speak to Mary? Mary was actually his biological mother. But why Joseph? Because, friends, I believe that Joseph, as a man, as Mary's husband, as Jesus' adoptive father, was responsible to protect his wife and his child. And God said, Joseph, I'm trusting you with my son. Men, we have an important role to play in leading our families, protecting our wives and our children. And we see Joseph doing just that as the Lord guides him in taking care of Jesus and Mary in this time. So we have five fulfilled prophecies, four guiding dreams in this chapter. Friends, the God of the Bible is not a God far off. Do you notice that? Do you notice that God is not unconcerned and uninvolved with the world? God is speaking. He's moving. He's fulfilling. He's accomplishing His purposes. And in verse 15, we hear Matthew declare that Jesus' flight to and return from Egypt was a further fulfillment of a prophecy from the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Now, we just need to take a second to understand this, because this can be confusing. When the prophet Hosea wrote these words in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, the son that the Lord was referring to was unquestionably the people of Israel. And the event that these words referred to was unquestionably the exodus of Israel from Pharaoh and from Egypt and from their captivity. So how then could Matthew write that Jesus' life here is a fulfillment of what Hosea wrote when he was clearly referring to Israel and the exodus from Egypt? It it, it helps us to understand that when we read in Matthew's Gospel and he speaks of fulfilling Old Testament Scripture, it could be meant in one of three ways. And just briefly to understand this. First, it could be a direct prediction fulfillment like we saw last week. The prediction of Emmanuel, God with us, was perfectly fulfilled and directly fulfilled. The prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. That was directly fulfilled in Jesus, perfectly fulfilled in him. Secondly, we're going to hear Jesus talk about fulfilling the scripture and especially when we get to this Sermon on the Mount. I have not come to abolish the Scriptures. I've come to fulfill them. He has come to give us their full and complete and intended meaning. And we're going to hear Him do just that in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. And the third way that Jesus fulfills the Scriptures is sometimes what we find like here. What happened before is seen as an analogy, a type of what's happening now in Christ. For example, when God delivered his son Israel from Egypt, then that was a foreshadowing, a type of what God was going to do now in delivering his son Jesus from Egypt. So what happened then is understood as a type or a foreshadowing of what was going to happen and be fulfilled now in Jesus. And in this way, Jesus coming out of Egypt is a fulfillment of that type, that foreshadowing in God's deliverance of His people. Friends, everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. I, I love that our, one of our Sunday school classes is using the Jesus Storybook Bible, and their tagline is, Every story whispers His name. And even the story of, G- of Israel's exodus from Egypt whispers the name of Jesus, pointing us forward to the day that God would draw His Son out of Egypt. Now, when Herod realizes he's been duped by the wise men, he clearly is not happy. So they're not returning to report the location of the new king. And the aftermath, friends, is a horrible, horrible tragedy. Herod doesn't just order the slaughter of newborn infants, but according to the times that Herod had learned from the Magi about the appearance of the star and their traveling, he orders the death of all male children two years and under. Now, Bethlehem was a small town and the surrounding area was sparsely populated, so scholars estimate that the number of male children who were slaughtered by Herod was somewhere between 12 and 20 children. But friends, that's a significant number of families in this small community who fell victim to the wrath of a paranoid and an insecure king. This is the part of the Christmas story that we don't like to discuss. Because Christmas is about being merry. 
We want to believe that now that Jesus is here, all of our problems are going to be gone. But friends, the aftermath of Jesus' coming brought about tragedy. Matthew chapter 2, verse 18 declares that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah 31.15. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Friends, Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob or Israel. Rachel is one of the mothers of all the Israelites. She's one of the matriarchs of the Jewish people. And Genesis 35 tells us that Rachel died in childbirth as she was on the road traveling to Bethlehem. And she was buried alongside the road near Bethlehem. And even today, Samuel put up the picture, even today many Jewish people go and they visit this. This is Rachel's tomb. And it's there, outside of Bethlehem today. And many visit that tomb and they pour out their sorrows to Mother Rachel. Because Rachel died in sorrow and lament. And as she died in childbirth, she named her son Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But her husband Jacob renamed him to Benjamin, son of my right hand. And so we know Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. A thousand years after Rachel died in lamentation, the prophet Jeremiah watched all of Rachel's offspring, all the people of Israel, as they trudged into exile down the same road. Leading up to the Babylonian exile, there was a siege during which many were starved and an assault during which many fell by the sword. And the Babylonian army was dragging the Jewish people off to exile. They dragged them off to Ramah where they held a camp where they were chained for their long march to Babylon. And when Jeremiah saw this, he lamented and he said, the children of Rachel are lost. They've been starved. They've been slaughtered. They're being dragged into exile. Rachel weeps and refuses to be comforted because her children are no more. So when Jeremiah saw the children of Israel being dragged off to exile, he lamented and he wept. And here, 600 years after Jeremiah wrote those words, Matthew sees in the slaughter of these children another fulfillment of these words. More innocent Jewish children are suffering, weeping in loud lamentation. Jewish mothers refusing to be comforted because their innocent children are no more. Friends, this is a horrible story. In the aftermath of the most incredible event that has ever happened, the Creator God taking on flesh and breaking into human history so He can save His people from their sins, we find it's not all peace and joy, but injustice, pain, and lament. And friends, this account reminds us. It reminds us of the absolute brokenness and injustice of the world into which Jesus was born. Not only did His coming not just make all of our problems go away, in the aftermath of His coming, we find further pain, tragedy, and lament. And some of you here might read this account and you might start to ask hard questions. If God could send an angel to warn Mary and Joseph to flee, why didn't he send angels to any of the other parents in Bethlehem? If God intervened to deliver Jesus 
Why do you allow all those other innocents to be slaughtered? Why would God deliver His Son, calling His Son out of Egypt, while leaving Rachel to weep, to loudly lament and inconsolably weep over her children which are no more? Friends, this is the question we all ask in the aftermath of a tragedy. Where were the angels warning us to flee? Where was God in delivering us from danger, calling us out of Egypt? Why are we left with Rachel weeping inconsolably and lamenting loudly that our children are no more? My wife is no more. My husband's no more. My health is no more. Our prodigal is no more. My home is no more. My marriage is no more. My savings are no more. My innocence is no more. My peace is no more. It doesn't seem fair that God would exempt His Son from our suffering. Friends, we may never understand. We may never understand the why behind a particular event that we, that you, or a loved one has experienced. We may never understand why God allows a sickness or an accident, why He doesn't intervene, and why He allows dysfunction to continue or addictions to go unbroken, why evil appears to go unrestrained or relationships go unreconciled. This passage doesn't give us illumination as to why you have been left lamenting and weeping like Rachel, except to know that this world is broken. However, this passage does point us to the gospel. It points us to the good news. Friends, if you find yourself struggling with the question, wrestling with the idea that God is not fair for delivering His Son while allowing all these other sons to die, remember this. Remember this, that while God did call His Son out of Egypt that day, saving Him from Herod's slaughter, remember that Jesus was rescued from Herod only to one day be crucified by Pontius Pilate. Remember that Jesus escaped Bethlehem so that one day He could die on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Remember that an angel came to deliver the baby Jesus on that day, but no angels came to the adult Jesus as He hung on the cross in utter humiliation and agony, bearing the sin of the world upon Himself. Samuel, you can take that scripture down. We're not there yet. Friends, Jesus was delivered from the evil in Bethlehem so that one day outside of Jerusalem, he might bear upon himself all of our evil so that he might be crushed by our sin, so that he might experience our abuse, so that he might bear our grief, so that he might carry our shame. Jesus was spared from the cradle so that he might die on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 5, which says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. One pastor rightly observed, the only boy to escape Herod, was the one who one day would be able to comfort Rachel. The only boy who escaped Herod's wrath in Bethlehem was the one who would one day be able to comfort Rachel in her mourning. And the only one who can comfort you in the aftermath of your pain. 
Jesus lived through that brutal night in Bethlehem, which left Rachel weeping inconsolably, so that one day Jesus himself might be brutalized on the cross, so that Rachel might be consoled and healed. For by his wounds we are now healed. Friends, in this is comfort for Rachel and for us. Because the message is, your grief is real, but it is not ultimate. Death is the final enemy, but death will not have the final word. Church, you are destined not to live in the aftermath of sin or tragedy or brokenness. Now you are destined to live in the aftermath of Jesus' cross and his empty tomb. The gospel is that along with Rachel in this life, you will weep and you will lament. However, because of what Jesus has done, our weeping is not inconsolable. And one day we'll turn to joy. Friends, the good news is that because of Jesus' wounds, we might be healed. Because of his resurrection, all things might be made made new. Because of Jesus, Rachel might be comforted, and so might you. So friends, if you're here today in the aftermath of a loss, a tragedy, an addiction, a sin, a brokenness, pain, and you're wondering where God was or where God is, Does God understand? Does God care? Friends, look not to the aftermath of your sin or your pain or your tragedy. Those things will not have the final word. Those things will not have the final word. Look to the aftermath of the cross. To the aftermath of the empty tomb. Because of what Christ has done, Rachel will be comforted and so might you. And if you're here today or watching online and you're seeking that comfort, I would love to pray with you following the service this week. I'd love to invite you from the aftermath of your pain into the aftermath of Christ's cross. For by his wounds, friends, we've been healed. And by his victory, we can be comforted. Do you know the comfort of Christ today? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you have made a way. A way that we might come to you. A way that our sin might be dealt with a way that our wounds might be healed. You, by your resurrection, have said, no, death will not have the final word. Tragedy will not have the final word. Sin will not have the final word. You have the final word. And in that is comfort. In that is hope. In that is peace. Now, Father, send us forth that we might be bearers of that peace, and of that hope to a world in need. In Jesus' name, amen. In